As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter 1. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy-to-read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. C.S. Lewis Podcast with Alistair McGrath. You are listening to the C.S. Lewis Podcast with Professor Alistair McGrath, brought to you by Premier. I'm Ruth Jackson, and over this third series, Alistair and I will be looking at some of the key themes and ideas in the Narnia Chronicles. You can find out more about this series, as well as C.S. Lewis and Professor Alistair McGrath, by heading to cslewispodcast.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please don't forget to like, rate and subscribe on whatever podcast platform you use. On today's episode, we will be focusing on Prince Caspian. Alistair, we are talking about Prince Caspian. And I guess one of the first questions that springs to mind is why Uncle Miraz was trying to hide the truth from Prince Caspian. Well, I think we need to bear in mind Lewis's context here. Lewis is writing after the Second World War. And in Britain, after the Second World War, which ended in 1945, there's this feeling that um, we want to leave the past behind. It's a bright new future that the old ways are out of date and should be forgotten and set behind us permanently. And, you know, maybe Miraz is just echoing that kind of worldview. Forget the past. We're in a new world. The language of, you know, um, a new Narnia is is very much there. And what Lewis is really saying is, look, you cannot do this. You need to be attentive to the past. And it has the potential to inform and enrich the present right now. He says, doesn't he, that's all nonsense for babies at your age. You ought to be thinking of battles and adventures, not fairy tales. I mean, do you think he has a particular group or people in, in mind who are sort of trying to suppress the truth? I think he may well be thinking of Sigmund Freud, who, of course, um, settled in England just before the Second World War um, and uh, was a major influence in British culture and American culture um, after the Second World War. And again, there was this idea that God is simply a childish delusion. This is something that uh, we need to leave behind us. And maybe what Lewis is really saying is look, we need to be aware of this and do something about it. Trumpkin the Dwarf says the words, who believes in Aslan nowadays? Do you think that was a comment from Lewis on the kind of growing secularization of his society? And is that something, do you think, that's even more prevalent now? I think both of these are true. Trumpkin is, in effect, speaking here for the cultural mindset that Lewis had um, encountered. You know, and he was very much aware that something had changed. He was very worried about this. I think that in many ways uh, we, we are in a worse situation because basically um, we are further down the road, road of secularization than was the case um, in the immediate post-war period. I think, therefore, the Prince Miras actually speaks for a voice that, if anything, has grown in intensity over the years. And we see that even at the end of the book, some of the Narnians are still really sceptical 
Um, so how do we convince people in this kind of sceptical, secularist society, do you think, that Aslan is alive? I think there are two things we need to do. One of them is to say this is not about a nostalgic return to the good old days. It's very much about rediscovering something that is true and is real and is immensely relevant to the challenges that we face. That's a general point. But the second point is we need to be able to connect with today's people in a way that enables us to um, talk about these things are being seen to be old fashioned. And in many ways, in writing the story of Prince Caspian, Lewis tells us that narratives are the way ahead. And narrative is able to capture some of this imagination. It's able to, in effect, talk about these things in terms that get through these cultural barriers. So I think what Lewis is doing in this novel is diagnosing a situation and also saying we need to make sure these stories continue to be told because if they are told well and faithfully, they are going to recaptivate people and help them to realize how important this is. You talked there about the kind of competing narratives and there's a point where Nickerbrick is talking about the different competing narratives, the, the narrative of the of the witch and the narrative of Aslan. Um, and he says, but they, uh, sorry, the, the badger says, but they also say that he came to life again. And Nickerbrick then says, well, yes, so they say, but you'll notice that we hear precious little about anything he did afterwards. He just fades out of the story. Do you think Lewis is reminding us that there are competing narratives? I think he is. I think he is really picking up on the increasing um, influence of uh, probably two major narratives. One of them is Freudianism, one of them is Marxism, both of which became increasingly prevalent in England um, after the Second World War. And in America, of course, Freudianism was becoming very significant around this time. And what Lewis is saying is that both of these are urging us to break with the past, to in effect reject what was in the past as being something that should be forgotten and was in any case simply a childish delusion. So in many ways, what Lewis is doing is constructing a narrative which begins to engage with some significant voices in the post-war age and which in effect was a struggle for the future direction of Western culture. And do you think there are any particularly compelling uh, alternative narratives in our day that Lewis would have wanted to speak into? Well, I think one of them, um, I think one of them is important, and it's this narrative that uh, religion is just a wish fulfillment. This, of course, comes from Freud, and it's this idea that basically um, you make up a worldview to suit yourself. It's something which gives you consolation. It's something to the way you'd like it to be. And there are many people who would say that, in effect, um, belief in God is simply an updated wish fulfillment in which you say it would be wonderful if there was a God, so there is a God. I think one of the points we do need to make is that atheism is equally a wish fulfillment, that we, we want to be in charge. We don't want to be accountable to anybody else. And therefore, atheism, as much as Christianity, is a wish fulfillment. What Lewis, I think, is doing is simply drawing attention to the fact that very often there are cultural trends that are taking place around us. We need to be aware of this and be able to engage with these in some way. Do you think Lewis would have anything to say to the new atheist movement today? I think the new atheism is very rational and suppresses the imagination. And that, I think, is, is very, very important because Lewis very often made the point, particularly in Surprised by Joy, that, um, that he, he felt that 
a rational world was all that there was. And yet he knew in his heart of hearts, it didn't satisfy, it didn't answer all of his deepest questions. And so I think that's a very important point for Lewis, that we need to be aware that people are trying to shut down the imagination in order to persuade us that we can only believe in what is true rationally. And the point is that is a very, very small world. And in New Atheism was trying to restrict us to this very narrow, very inadequate world. And you know, I think Lewis anticipated that. It's something he felt during the 1920s. It's something I think we need to be aware of today as well. Do you think there are certain things that Lewis thought were easier to believe than others? You kind of get that sense throughout this story that maybe this thing is easier to believe, but that thing's really difficult to believe. Is there a kind of parallel that Lewis is trying to make with his own society believing things, do you think? I'm sure that idea is there. I think that if you look at the way Lewis does apologetics, very often the idea is you begin with something that is actually relatively easy to explain. Say, look, if you believe that, well, can you not see it also implies this? So by implicitly believing this, you're also believing this, but you don't want to admit that. So I think there is a sense, if you like, that Lewis is looking for the the point of least resistance to begin his whole apologetic enterprise. That's why Lewis very often begins with things like a sense of moral obligation or a sense that there is something something that we're trying to find but haven't found yet. And I think these are very important starting points for apologetics in what I think we have to say is a post-Christian age. We've already looked at this a little bit when we were talking about the lion and the witch in the wardrobe. But in this book, we really see Lucy as the one who sees things when other people don't. What is Lewis trying to say here? Is he trying to encourage us? Is he trying to chastise us? Or, or is it just part of the story, do you think? Well, it's certainly part of the story, but maybe he's trying to encourage those who read the story and say, hey, I'm, I'm a bit like Lucy. I can see things that others have missed. And maybe Lewis is saying that your voice needs to be heard. Don't give up. Because in effect, one of the points that Lewis makes at several points in, in his writings is that we depend on people to keep talking about these things, to keep explaining these things. In fact, Lewis saw himself as doing this. So maybe Maybe Lewis is trying to encourage people who, in effect, feel that they might be called to, to try to keep these ideas alive and show their ongoing relevance. There's a line which says Aslan was not only invisible to them, but silent as well. What, what do you think Lewis is saying here? Do you think he's suggesting that we need a certain amount of faith to even kind of make that first step to belief? I think one of the things that Lewis is saying is his widespread perception in culture that God is silent, that actually, you know, he may be a presence, but he actually does not speak to us powerfully today. I think that one of the points that Lewis does make throughout the Chronicles of Narnia is that while Aslan speaks directly, he very often speaks through surrogates, in other words, through people who have seen Aslan, who know what Aslan is like and want to talk about him. So although Aslan is not speaking directly, though those who will talk about their memories of Aslan, uh, their experiences of Aslan, and he's making the very important point, this is one of the ways in which you keep Aslan a living presence in the cultural now. It's all about remembering, repeating, and bearing witness to what you know to be true. When Susan disbelieves Lucy, um, Lucy's response is, don't talk like a grown-up. I don't think I saw him, I saw him. Why do you think grown-ups are less likely to believe the miraculous? And is that something that Lewis is intentionally saying? I think that um, Lewis is trying to make the point that children 
are not constrained by social conventions about what can be and what can't be the case. They tell it, they say things as they see them. And one, maybe one of the things that Lewis is saying here is that as you grow older, you become more susceptible to being influenced by cultural norms and expectations. And therefore, his argument is actually maybe children challenge those. Maybe they see things because they are not um, held back by these cultural expectations about what is right and what is wrong. And therefore, they're more likely to be able to talk about these things. And of course, I could give this added depth by talking about the whole idea of childhood spirituality, which has become increasingly important. The realization that actually children have very often very vivid understandings of what God is like, but these are very often socialized out of them um, during their teens. And what does Lewis think that it means to have a childlike faith? Was that something he was trying to um, encourage through these children? I think we need to make a distinction between a childlike faith and a childish faith. I think Sigmund Freud was saying, you know, belief in God is simply childish, i.e. it's something you grow out of. I think what Lewis is really talking about is a childlike faith, which means, in effect, um, a trusting faith, um, a realisation that there is something there, even though we can't actually put into words what it is. And I think that that's something we do need to come back to, that very often we find that as we get older, we become much more aware of cultural pressures, which very often means we don't say some things that we know we ought to be saying. Lewis also clearly thinks that maturity is important as well, though, doesn't he? There's a line that Aslan says to Lucy, which is, every year you grow, you will find me bigger, which sort of seems the opposite. Do you think that's a... a do you think he's referring to maturity there? I think what Lewis is saying here is something very important. And I think uh, many people have experienced precisely this, which is as you grow, God expands to meet your growing needs and situations. In other words, that you are not trapped with a kind of a six-year-old vision of God, but rather God uh, expands to meet the new challenges you face. In other words, it's this idea of, of God being with you wherever you go and not just being able to meet the situations you faced in the past, but being able to meet the situations that you face in your present. So if you like, it's about as you grow and journey, God grows within you as you journey. It's not really about God changing. It's about um, God, us appreciating all the more the depth of God uh, and realising how God is able to inform us and encourage us as we face new and unknown situations. Now, we tend to see sort of different facets of Aslan's character, of God's character throughout these Narnia Chronicles. What do you think Lewis is um, trying to show us about the character of God in Prince Caspian? Well, I think that one of the key points is God is always there, even if we think he's not. I think that is a very important point that... Um, uh, that God is you know, always there, despite what our culture tells us. But one of the things I, I would point out is the, the language that Lewis uses about Aslan in this um, novel. It, it is surprisingly focused on the language of love. You know, it's about relationships. Uh, it's about people mattering to um, Aslan. You know, for example, um, uh, he, he will talk about Lucy as his sweetheart and things like that. I think what we see here is a very vivid depiction of a God who encounters people and in doing so transforms them because Aslan loves them. 
they are they are loved in return. I think it's a very important point here. And I think that one of the things I noticed particularly about this novel is that there's the dominance of the theme of Aslan changing people, changing animals. Now, as you say, uh, there are lots of examples of Aslan changing people, you know, by being in his presence or by him breathing on them. Now, how do you think Lewis thinks that happens when it comes to God? How does God change us, would Lewis say? Well, I think Lewis gives us lots of examples. And obviously, this is a story. So Lewis doesn't really go into detail about these more theological questions. But we might think, for example, of mere Christianity and the idea of the good infection, whereby, in effect, something of what God is or Christ is, is conveyed to us and begins to transform us from within. If you like, something of God's life becomes part of our life and thus is able to change us. Now, I think Lewis in this novel is not really concerned with going into conceptual detail, but I would say that that he tells stories which brings this point out and our instinct might then be to say well how can this happen but i think prince caspian is more concerned with showing that these things do happen and then leaving us to think about how they might happen uh, at a later date i suppose one example of these changes is that lucy talks about feeling lion strength going into her from aslan's mane uh, then aslan says to her now you are a lioness and now all narnia will be renewed do you think lewis is implying here that we can take on aspects of god's character and if so how does he think that happens i wonder if here lewis is trying to articulate a very accessible way of thinking about the Holy Spirit. Um, Lewis, um, I, I think, finds it quite easy to talk about God and Christ. The Spirit perhaps isn't quite as easy, but very often he will do this by talking about the Spirit bringing us life or strength or being part of God's life within us. And I think I see echoes of this here. And I think that this whole language of feeling lion strength within you is a way almost of, of translating into this narrative the idea of the Holy Spirit um, bringing us God's life, God's strength within us in order that we may rise to the challenges that God uh, brings us. So I don't, I don't necessarily think this means we take on elements of God's character, although I can see how that might be one possible outcome. I think it's much more being energized or enabled by the presence of God within us. Now, Nicobrack, Nicobrack, <laughs> Nicobrick, the dwarf, is, is seen as a fairly unpleasant character in this, but, but it does say that he'd gone sour inside from long suffering and hating, but that he could have become a good dwarf in the days of peace. Does Lewis think that it's Nicobrick's fault that he is like that, or is it sort of out of his control in some senses? I think Lewis is really using the language of blame or fault here. I think he's simply saying this is how it happened. Um, and I think the question that Lewis might want to think about is, has that happened to us? Might that happen to us? If you like, um, you know, have we um, found ourselves in a situation where in effect we uh, we ended up hating certain people or certain things and as a result changed as people. In other words, have we been shaped by our circumstances in a bad way? And is there some way in which we can recover from this? Because I think what um, Lewis is really saying is, look, had circumstances be otherwise, this might not have happened. So to me, there are two questions here. One's the question you've raised, which is a good question. But for me, there's a more pragmatic question, which is asking, has this happened to me? 
without it, my realizing? And if so, how can I find out and what can I do about it? So maybe it's a, it's a good diagnostic test for asking whether things have happened to us that we need to identify and begin to do about. Where does Lewis think natural evil came from? Lewis, I think, um, doesn't in in the Narnia Chronicles really really engage this question at the, the philosophical level. I think he is saying that um, uh, there is a good creation. We read about that in The Magician's Nephew, and very quickly something went wrong. And as I read the Chronicles of Narnia, I'm not sure I see Lewis really feeling that explaining the origins of natural evil are that important. I think his focus is on it's there and it might impact on you. And I think that therefore the two questions, one is, um, is this affecting me? And number two, is there anything I can do to try and limit its impact or do something about it? So I think that that's kind of way the way Lewis's thought is going at this point. When Aslan asks Caspian if he thinks he's sufficient to take up the kingship of Narnia, Caspian says that he doesn't think he is. And then Aslan's response is, if you'd felt yourself sufficient, it would have been a proof that you were not. Why do you think humility is so important for Aslan and, and I suppose thus for God? I think here Lewis is echoing some very familiar themes of the New Testament. Um, you think, for example, of Paul in Second um, Corinthians, um, when he experiences this whole business of the thawed in the flesh, whatever that was, and, and maybe malaria. But certainly, it's this idea that um, Paul realized he was completely inadequate and empty. And here's God saying, you know, my strength you know, is what you need. Um, my grace is sufficient for you. And I think it, the problem here is that when we feel self-sufficient, we disconnect from God. And the point that I think Paul is making in that passage is that it's when we are at our weakest that we know that God's strength is there and draw on it. And maybe that's what Lewis is getting at here, that in effect, if we feel we're self-sufficient, we disconnect. We say we don't need this. So we just get on with things and trust in our own strength. I think Lewis is bringing out what I think is a very important point, which is a very often um, a point of spiritual growth is when you realize that you failed, when you realize you're inadequate, and as a result, you begin to reopen the connections with God and transformation results. So I think that's a very important spiritual point that Lewis is getting at here. Of course, there's this other point which is related to it, which is that if you are called to do something for God, then you need to let God help you to do that. And that means you've got to be aware of your weaknesses in order to draw on God's strength to achieve these ends. There's a line that Lucy says to Susan, which is, wouldn't it be dreadful if someday in our own world at home, men started going wild inside like the animals here and still looked like men so that you'd never know which were which. Do you think that's some sort of commentary that Lewis is making on his own society? And, and do, do you think it's true of our contemporary culture as well? I think Lewis here may be thinking about the Second World War. And I think that um, in the immediate post-war period, there's a growing realisation of just how brutal the Second World War was, the, the concentration camps, the extermination camps, and, and the language of people behaving like animals was actually quite widespread. And so it may well be that what Lewis is doing here is to say it's very, very easy for us to lose, to lose the the, the effect of civilization limiting us. And in effect, we go back to a period 
when we behave like animals. That, that was a very important theme at the time. For example, Thomas H. Huxley, who was a great friend of Charles Darwin, just said, look, the problem is that in our evolutionary past, we were violent. We were very, very aggressive. We have to leave that behind now for the sake of civilization. But if civilization collapses, we will go back to behaving like animals. And, you know, maybe Lewis is hinting at this here, that in effect, it is fatally easy for us to regress and to return to almost like some form of barbarism. So I think there's a very interesting point being made here. And just as we end this show, there are any number of sort of profound comments that Lewis could have closed this book with, but he ends it by Edmund saying, bother, I've left my new torch in Narnia. Do you think there's something significant about this or is it just the kind of lightness of touch that Lewis wanted to leave the readers with? Well, it's a very strange way of ending a novel, isn't it? And I would have thought something more profound would have been appropriate. But let me tell you what I think is going on here. Oh, bother, I've left my new torch in Narnia. Well, isn't the implication I'm going to have to go back and find it? Don't you think that, in effect, Lewis is signposting a clear expectation that there's a sequel here which involves returning to Narnia? I don't know, but that seems to me to be one way of explaining what is actually quite a strange ending. <laughs> well, what a great way to end it. We will be returning to Narnia soon, but thank you so much, Alistair. Thank you so much. Be great fun. Thank you for listening to the C.S. Lewis podcast with Professor Alistair McGrath, brought to you by Premier. I'm Ruth Jackson, and if you enjoyed this podcast, please don't forget to like, rate and subscribe on whatever podcast platform you use. You can find out more about this series, as well as C.S. Lewis and Professor Alistair McGrath, by heading to cslewispodcast.com. Next week, we'll be looking at The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. <laughs>